I'd love for you to turn in your Bible with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you brought it this morning. Uh, Today we are in our third week of this series, Messy Church, as we continue to look at uh, this letter that Paul wrote, the letter of 1 Corinthians, to this church uh, in in Corinth. But also this morning, we begin kind of a a series within a series, as chapters 5 through 7 of this letter uh, address how we live out sexuality under the lordship of Jesus. Uh, This begins in chapter 5 with a situation I've referenced each week of this series so far. Paul is addressing a particularly messy situation. There's a man in the church sleeping with his father's wife, with his own stepmom. And that's not just messy. That's like the kind of stuff that gets you in like Dr. Phil. You know, this is a a whole new level. And so Paul is addressing this because not only is this situation happening, but the response of the church is an unhealthy one. It's a messy one. Uh, the Corinthian believers um, are, are proud of, of this, proud of their acceptance, proud of their tolerance, proud of how they're exercising their freedom in Christ. And so Paul has to address this and say, this kind uh, of sin can't be tolerated in a church, particularly when it's something that goes on continually and without repentance. And so he instructs the church on how to practice this kind of restorative judgment and for a time, cutting this man off from the fellowship of the community so that he will come to understand and in time repent of this sin. Now, the reason I'm not addressing chapter 5 specifically this morning is we actually looked at this text a couple of years ago uh, in a series we called True or False, talking about this idea of restorative judgment. And I know that all of you remember all of my sermons, and so two years ago is short enough time that we don't have to talk about this again. But no, I I did want to, uh, though, actually point you to uh, some resources, though. Uh, We do live stream all of our services that are all recorded, and so this is a a text that you would like to listen to, and we preached about this. You can go back to that series, True or False, uh, on our YouTube page and and do that. Uh, Also, you can use our, we have a podcast, which is just the audio of the sermon, so if you're exercising or doing the dishes or driving or whatever it might be and you can't watch, you can listen as well. I wanted to give you those resources uh, and use this as an opportunity to move now into this next section of chapter 6. So, uh, as we look at chapter 6 this morning, Paul begins to talk about this, use this uh, situation in chapter 5 uh, as a springboard to talk about Christian sexuality with some broader strokes, particularly how we uh, live in this world uh, that is rife with sexual immorality. Now, I want to acknowledge and say up front that I know that talking about sex in church can be uncomfortable. And however uncomfortable you might be with this, I am way more uncomfortable being able to talk to you about it. Uh, But I do believe that it is a necessary conversation. Uh, I think historically, and I know this is generally speaking, that the church as a whole has not done a very good job discussing sex. We've either demonized it or ignored it, and I don't think either of those approaches uh, are particularly healthy. But it is an issue that we tackled this morning, recognizing that we have to do better, because the future of the church deserves better. And I know that sex can be a touchy issue because by its very nature it is intensely personal and maybe there are issues from your past in this arena that you would just rather forget or not have anyone know about. And it's not my, my goal this morning to bring up any kind of shame or judgment on those issues because I know that in an ideal world all of us would have known from the start that marriage is God-ordained arena for sexual expression to take place and, and we would have kept that. But for many that's not the case and so you know that if you've fallen short or messed up or have scars and baggage in this area to prove that, you, you know how difficult this can be. And if that describes you this morning, then I want you to know as we approach this, we do so under this umbrella of redeeming grace. 
We know that in Christ, when you've given that to him and repented of that, your, your past is forgiven. The Bible tells us those sins are as far as the east is from the west. But I still think that we need to talk about this. Because if you have that baggage or that experience, don't you want better for your kids or for your grandkids? Don't you want better for them than approaching sex from what TV has to say about it or what they hear from their friends or what they hear in music? And I also recognize not just the uncomfortability of this, but the difficulty of this. That dealing with the mess of what is sex in our culture is a bit like trying to drain an Olympic-sized swimming pool with a Dixie cup. But I also know that if the church doesn't exemplify a holy sexual ethic, who will? And so my sermon this morning is simply called One Dixie Cup. And I know that this sermon will not change the world, and maybe our efforts won't change the world. But we can change us, and we can change our families, and we can have discussions that instill the importance of purity before marriage. And I think those little efforts will have a great impact. I think of it this way. Uh, would you rather have, and, and hold up, because first you're going to feel, uh, feel ready to answer this before you hear the second part of the question. Would you rather have a million dollars right now or one penny that doubles in value every day for the next month? You would think that the million dollars would be the smart bet. I mean, how big can a penny really get? But if you were to double that amount every day for the next month, you'd actually end up with $5.3 million. You see, those small changes, conversations in your family, if every Christian decides to remain sexually pure outside of marriage, if we commit ourselves to accountability within a community, if we take God at his word, believing that he knows what is best for us, then those small things, those values of small changes become monumental. And so all of this being said this morning, looking at 1 Corinthians 6, I'm both encouraged and discouraged by what I see here and what I see in the world around us. I'm encouraged because these issues that we talk about this morning aren't necessarily new ones. We tend to think, as every culture before us, that there's never been a more immoral time in human history than the one we're living in right now. But we see this morning that even 2,000 years ago, people, even in the church, are struggling with this idea of sexual immorality. And so I'm encouraged that we are facing issues that this is not uncharted territory. But I'm also kind of discouraged because the issues that we're talking about this morning aren't new ones. It seems as if some things never change. Again, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still dealing with these same issues. But in that regard, people often think of the Bible as outdated or out of touch. And yet this morning we see that this church in Corinth is struggling with the exact same issues that we do today. So much so that even through our text this morning, I want to frame the issues that Paul brings up in light of some of the myths that we tell ourselves or that we use when it comes to excusing or defending uh, an unbiblical sexual ethic. And the first myth is this, my body, my rights. Paul says in verse 12, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. As we see Paul define a healthy biblical sexual ethic, he does so by refuting some of the popular mottos of Corinth. One of the popular phrases of the day was this, I have the right to do anything. And Paul is not telling us, I have the right to do anything. He's quoting their own misguided slogan back to them. And if there were anything in this letter that I think we as Americans could probably identify with, it's probably this phrase, I have the right to do anything. I mean, is there anything more thoroughly American than rights and liberty and independence? 
And we have the right to free speech and the right to bear arms and the right to the freedom of religion. I mean, the list could go on and on. And, and rights are not a bad thing. But I think we have to remember that just because we have the right, that doesn't always make it right. Do I have the right to, after dinner every night, eat ice cream? Sure, I'm not going to get arrested for it. I'm not going to lose my job. It might even be an enjoyable experience. But if I carry that out to an excess, is it going to be beneficial for me? Sure, right up until I get, you know, diabetes. <laughs> That's, do I have the right to drink a two liter of Mountain Dew every day? Of course I do. It's, it is my right. And yet, carry that out, I'm going to begin to feel caffeine withdrawal symptoms if I were to ever stop that practice. Do I have the right to post stupid inflammatory stuff on my social media page? Sure I do. But don't be surprised when that kind of thing gets you into trouble. You see, what we see here is that even if we think that we have the right to free sexual expression, which, according to the Bible, we actually don't, that doesn't mean that that expression comes without consequence. How much pain and heartache and difficulty could have been avoided in our lives if we simply waited within the confines of marriage to express the gift of sex that God had given us? I think the second myth kind of goes right along with this and the idea of being free from consequence, myth number two, that it's just sex. It's just biology. He continues verse 13. He says, food for the stomach, or you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul quotes back to them another Corinthian phrase to express this idea, their idea, that it's just sex, it's just biology. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's an expression that they had. In other words, look, if you're hungry, you eat. If you have an appetite, you fill it. You eat, you drink. If you have an itch, you scratch it. What's the big deal? It's just biology. You see, this was a culture in which this young church in Corinth it found themselves in this day and even in ours. That actually was in the ancient world a phrase to act like a Corinthian, which was meant to have unbridled, uninhibited sexual promiscuity. I mean, they were known. This culture was known for that. And what's worse was that their worship often mixed this. Their primary goddess in their culture was the goddess Aphrodite, the Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility. And so they would go to their temple and, in act of worship, unite themselves with prostitutes. It wasn't just an acceptable practice, it was considered an act of worship and as a legitimate alternative to, to adultery. To, to go and say things like, I'm not cheating on my spouse, I'm just completing a business transaction. I'm, it's just biology, I'm just worshiping. And this sounds maybe even astounding to us, but it's really not all that different from the message that we encounter every single day. You'd be hard-pressed to find a sitcom or a movie today that doesn't at least involve a subplot of some pair of characters hooking up. Uh, even in our music, the ways that it kind of it creeps into our lives, Maroon 5 in 2013 wrote, or 2014 wrote a song called Animals. Where the lyric says, Baby, I'm praying on you tonight. I remember the fourth grade, riding the bus, hearing the song sung, The Bad Touch which contains the lyric, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do like they do on the Discovery Channel. It's just biology. 
And this is the message that we hear all over the world. It's just casual sex. There's no strings attached. And somewhere along the line, we bought the lie that the Corinthians had bought. For them, it was being so close to Athens, this Corinthian culture had considered themselves enlightened. That's the latest and greatest of philosophies. And so they heard people like Plato talk about how the soul was separate from the flesh. And your soul was really mattered. Your flesh was full of all kinds of evil, and so you could do whatever you wanted with it as long as you kept your soul pure. After all, according to them, their body's just going to rot in the ground after you die. And our culture has in large part believed the same kind of lie. Maybe not couched in philosophy, but the thought is the same. It's just sex. We're just having fun. We're just friends with benefits. It doesn't really affect who I am. It's just biology. But Paul tells us that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the very foundation of our faith, the resurrection, shows us that God is at least as interested in our bodies as he is in our souls. Going back to the Garden of Eden, when God, in Genesis, when God institutes expression to happen in marriage between a man and woman and Adam and Eve, there we see this unmistakable connection that occurs when people express sexual intimacy. It's said there, the two will become one flesh. There's this connection that goes beyond the physical, that actually connects us in a way that is only to be shared with a spouse. The third myth leading off of these two is that sex doesn't hurt anyone. If it's between consenting adults, what's the big deal? It's not like we're hurting anyone. As long as we both consent to what's taking place, why should it matter to you? And aside from this just being flat out false, we've all seen the damaging effects of what can happen when sex is not held in the proper context. Paul actually takes it one step further. He says, not only can sex be damaging, but the person that we can most be at risk of damaging is ourselves. And so verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. You see, sexual sin has a way of damaging us in a way that other sins can't or maybe don't. And not, just, not physically damaging, but it makes it more, all the more ironic that we consider sex as just a physical act. When the reality is that it's one of the things that can cause the most serious spiritual damage. And I don't think I need to get anecdotal here or illustrative here. I mean, anyone who has been in an unhealthy sexual relationship can talk about and knows the baggage that, goes, that you carry from relationship to relationship. And I don't know exactly all of the implications of what Paul says when he says all sins outside of, uh, all sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. But I think he at least means this. You see, unlike most sins, there's very little that you can do to reverse the effects of sexual sin. If you tell a lie, you can kind of fix that by confessing the truth. If you steal something, that you, you, can, you can bring it back and replace it or make reparations to do so. But when we have sex outside of the confines of marriage, something that ha happens that, that can't be necessarily as easily undone. Now, please don't hear me say that that is an unforgivable sin. That is not the case. Absolutely not. The blood of Jesus covers all of our sin when we repent and we bring it over to him. But that doesn't mean it's without consequence. Like a tube of toothpaste squeezed out, it's near impossible to put it back the way it was. 
And when we have sex outside of marriage, because we think it's our right, or we think it's just biology, or we think we're not hurting anyone. We often cheapen one of God's greatest gifts and steal something, not just from ourselves, from the other person, and our future spouse and their spouse. When we engage in sex outside of marriage, rather than the gift that God intended it to be, people will get hurt. Think about a friend of mine. She didn't meet her father until she was 30 years old because she was the result of her parents hooking up at prom. Think about how many young men in prison are there, at least in part, because they come from fatherless homes. You know the number? 85%. There have been 58, or estimated 58 million abortions between the institution of Roe v. Wade and its overturning last year. 58 million lives lost, babies killed, many of them regarded as unwanted consequences from what supposedly hurts no one. So what do we do with this? I think, first of all, we flee. We flee from sexual immorality. And that's not really our given stance in our culture of what you do in regards to this issue. But I think of Joseph in Genesis. You probably know the story. If you don't, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and because of their jealousy. And the first place he lands is under this master Potiphar in Egypt. And he's kind of given control of the whole household because of his integrity. And yet Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. And begins to implore him again and again, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. But he will not disrespect his master in that way and not disrespect God in that way. And so eventually, she takes hold of him, trying to drag him into bed, and he flees. He leaves his cloak behind and runs out of the room. I think of Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, I don't think he's speaking literally here, but he is showing us how drastic we have to deal with the, the temptation of sexual immorality in our lives. So maybe that means putting some protections in place in our homes, on the internet, on our phones, our kids' phones, setting boundaries in our current relationships or ending a relationship that you know is unhealthy sexually for you. I think second, and maybe even more important than fleeing, is to remember whose you are. Verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are, the temple, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. You see, if you're a Christian, if you have submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus and accepted His salvation and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, your life is not yours to do with as you please. Your body is not yours to do with as you please. This language that he uses, bought at a price, is slave language. Jesus gave up his life so that you would no longer be a slave to sin and immorality, but rather a slave to him, and no slave has mastery over their own body. I began this sermon by saying I was a little disappointed because it seems like some things never change. But I don't think that's entirely true. Just before this section in verse 9, Paul actually addresses and writes this to the Corinthian believers. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love that Paul doesn't say, 
That's what your past was. That's what defines you. He says, that's who you were. I think that's some of the most hopeful words in the entire Bible. In Christ, who you were is not who you are. And there is always hope for better because there's always hope in Christ. Who you were does not define who you are. So I want to make unmistakably clear that this sermon is not about judgment over your past, but it's about the grace of Jesus that can define your future. And it's about the living in the grace of his undeserved gifts in the way that he instructs us to. It is true that some things never change, but in Christ, everything changes. And that can include you. And so this morning, I want to offer a very simple invitation. Not just in regards to our sexuality, but in regards to just our lives. That if you have not made Jesus the Lord, the King, the boss, the master of your life, and to do so today. Whether that means coming up front during our next song or catching me uh, or, or one of our elders or Chris in the lobby or sometime during this week, we'd love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like to live with Jesus as your king. It's not about giving up on our rights. It's about living the ways that he has instructed us to, the ways that he knows best as our creator, the ways that we have been made to live. Maybe for some of you this morning, it's a decision you made long ago to make him Lord of your life, but to be honest, you've been trying to reclaim that ever since, or in more recent days. And that's an opportunity that you need to recommit yourself, and maybe that can happen right where you are. To say, Jesus, no longer am I going to live the way that I want to live, but I am going to make you the Lord of my life. I want you to be the one who rules who I am, because I know your ways are good, and your love is perfect. That's the decision you need to make. You, you need to make. I'd encourage you to do so this morning. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we talk about what it means to have a holy biblical sexual ethic. God, we, I know this is a tough issue. The statistics are any indication a lot of us in this room have experiences that we'd rather not have had in our lives. And God, even now, maybe we're living in those experiences, and there's that tug in us that tells us it's not right, and yet we want to continue to do what we want to do. So God, I pray that you would, most of all, help us to remember that we are yours, that we are marked by your Spirit, that we live under the Lordship of our King Jesus. And in regards to these issues, that we would not believe the myths and lies of our culture around us, but that we would live on your eternal truths. God, I pray that this would be an opportunity this morning for your grace to just be lavished on us, to not be filled with any kind of shame or guilt, to allow conviction to take place, and knowing that you want something better for us. And so, God, my prayer this morning is that we would be filled with your grace and your mercy, but also recognize your truth, and that truth would change us, that who we were is not who we are in you, God. So I pray that the blood of Jesus, we would recognize our new status when we give our lives to you, and that we pursue him and the hope that we have in his death and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.